And I'd like you to open a Bible with me to Exodus 16. Exodus is the second book in the Bible, so it's very near the beginning. You can, if you're using the Bible that's there in front of you in the pew rack, find this passage on page 70. Exodus is the, the Old Testament gospel, the good news that God hears the prayers of his people. God comes to their rescue. God provides for their atoning sacrifice, and that God is the one who forgives our sins. We have seen in the previous weeks that that God is the one who rescued his people from their slavery in Egypt, brought them into the wilderness, and miraculously led them through the Red Sea, and without any help from them, defeated the army of Pharaoh. The people praised God, but, but then their praise quickly became concern as they were in the wilderness without water. We saw that last week in chapter 15, and now the situation continues. The people are concerned about their survival. But the questions in the book of Exodus aren't just about the survival of the people of God. They're really questions about the character of God. As the people travel from the desert of Shur now into the desert of Sin, the land surrounding Sinai, they wonder, has God done this to us. And so listen as I read this, this true account from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 16. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. In the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. 
The Israelites did as they were told, some gathered much and some little. And when they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as he needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where he is on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was like coriander it was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come, so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, then place, place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna in front of the testimony that it might be kept. The Israelites ate manna forty years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. And Omer is a tenth of an ephah. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word that you reveal to us your grace and provision. That you show forth mercy toward your people. But Lord, let us not, not hear this merely as a historical account of what took place in the past. But let us hear it as your living and true word, written for us, for our benefit, that we might find in you the God who meets our needs. That we might see your provision for us and find our spiritual satisfaction in you. Lord, I pray that we would see the ministry of Jesus, our Savior, the one who came to rescue us from our sins, your Son, our Savior. So, Father, we come praying in the name of Jesus. Amen. Stephen Von Worley was driving and noticed a new mini-mall had popped up where there had previously been empty land. He says he's got nothing against the strip mall, but it raised a question for him. Just how far away can you get from our world of generic convenience? It was then that the golden arches of McDonald's came across the horizon, and he thought, well, there's no better barometer than McDonald's. He describes it as the ubiquitous fast food chain, and he calls it the inaugural mega-corporate colonizer of small towns everywhere. Basically saying, there are a lot of McDonald's, aren't there? 
So he gathered data on all 13,000 locations of McDonald's in the lower 48 states and put it into one map. Now, I'm really glad we have computer scientists who fill our lives with this kind of joy. He explains, as expected, McDonald's cluster at the population centers and hug the highway grid. East of the Mississippi, there's wall-to-wall coverage, except for a handful of meager gaps centered on the Adirondacks, inland Maine, the Everglades, and outlying West Virginia. So the Mick farthest spot, the farthest place you can get from a McDonald's, when he first created the map, it was in South Dakota, the, the northwest corner of South Dakota. But, but a couple of years ago, he, he updated the map based on where new locations had been put and, and where others had been closed. And so today, if you want to go to the McFarthest spot, you will have to drive deep into the high desert of Nevada. There, you can be 120 miles away from a McDonald's. That means in the entire lower 48 states, the farthest you can get away from a McDonald's is 120 miles. You are within two miles of the nearest McDonald's right now. And you're within four miles of at least three McDonald's. They are, of course, everywhere. It, it actually takes some work to get away from what, what Von Worley called our world of generic convenience, which means that most of us have never faced the discomforts of real hunger. Many of us, thankfully, don't really understand the danger of starving. Even if that's the phrase we use, I'm starving when we stand in front of a full refrigerator and pantry. The whole Israelite community is now a month out of Egypt. Food is becoming a real issue. That which they brought with them is running short. They fear they've been led in the desert only to starve to death. The, the dangers in ex- Exodus 16 echo the dangers we saw in the chapter before in Exodus 15. There is a real risk to the community, but it's also for us a question about the character of God. Will God provide for his people? And so just like we saw in chapter 15, the people begin to grumble and complain. One commentator says that, that sadly, whining is Israel's besetting sin. It happens again and again. Now, some of you probably know people in your lives that you would say, I know somebody just like that. The complaint comes in verse 2. Uh, the, the whole community grumbled against Aaron and Moses, the leaders of God's people. Except, of course, we know, because, well, Moses makes it clear, that their grumbling is not really against Moses and Aaron. They've only done what the Lord commanded them to do. They've brought the people to the very place that God has brought them. And so Moses tells them in in verse 7, well, of course, your grumbling has been against the Lord. I mean, who are we, he says, you should grumble against us. He says in verse 8 that God has heard your grumbling against him. You're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. And notice what they, what they say, what their complaint is. Look at verse 3. If only we had died in Egypt. Oh, wait, no, it's worse than that, isn't it? 
It's not merely that they look back and think, oh, if, if only we had died quickly there. That would have been merciful compared to this moment where our death will drag out, where starvation will be slow and painful. No, what, are they, what, what is their complaint in verse 3? If only we had died by the Lord's hand. They are actually saying it would have been better for us to have died in the plagues in Egypt, to have not been passed over, to have been wiped off the map, than to be here, rescued by God in the wilderness. I mean, this, this is one commentator says, this borders on blasphemy. They are blaming God for their condition, for the situation. They're saying, this is, this, what kind of God is he? He's the kind of God who drags people into de- the desert so they can watch children starve to death. That's the kind of God that he is. And yet, God, in, in response to them, he, 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 doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't correct them and say, wait, you think your, your memory is so bad that you thought in Egypt you sat around and always ate your fill, around full pots filled with meat? You were enslaved by, by Pharaoh. You didn't really live a life filled with such joy and comfort. I mean, that's what I would want to do to them. Are you, you're complaining, this isn't, you're, but what does God do? Moses says in verse 9, God has heard your grumbling. God reveals himself in his glory. And look at how he responds immediately in verse 4. When they complain that God has brought us out here to starve us to death, then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. God responds to their grumbling with mercy, with provision, with grace. See, the Israelites are looking back on their, on their life and thinking, well, we had it good back then. No, you didn't. You didn't have, have a, a life filled with joy and comfort. And yet God makes himself known. Aaron is speaking to the community in verse 10, and God reveals his glory to them. The glory of the Lord is revealed in the cloud. Now, you know, of course, this cloud has been traveling with them, leading them. God has been present with them. They could see the, the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. And so I don't know what the revelation looks like. Is the voice coming from the cloud? Is the, is the cloud glowing with a greater brightness? Is there lightning shooting forth? But whatever it is, the people realize God is right here with us, and he has just promised to rain down bread from heaven for us. And so they immediately that evening so that they will have their fill that verse 13 tells us that quail they have they have birds to 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 cook and to eat provided for them by God right away today when you grumbled God met your need and then in the morning verse 14 tells us that that when the the dew was gone because even in the desert there is there is this moisture the 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 manna appeared. The bread from heaven appeared on the ground like frost. And the Israelites in verse 15, they don't, they don't know what it is, so they just say, what is it? So then later on in the chapter, in verse 31, when they call it manna, they're just repeating that. What is it? I mean, that was the phrase everybody heard when people stepped out of their tents in the morning. What, what is it? And so that's what they call it. It's manna. It's bread 
provided from heaven by God. And what is it like? Verse 31 tells us. It, it was white, and it was like coriander seed, but how did it taste? Like wafers made with honey. Now remember, this is the ancient world before processed sugar is readily available. And so people would likely only have tasted something sweet if they had tasted honey. And honey is not cultivated in, and, and, and easily accessible. You don't go grab it in a jar and pour it into your, into your tea. No, you scavenge for it and find wild honey. So it's, it's rare. And the description is, it's the greatest thing we've ever tasted. Because, yeah, maybe they had, had had crumbs of something made with honey when they were enslaved and required to cook for their overlords. But they, few of them would likely have had, had such sweetness except on the rare occasion of finding honey in the wilderness. God provided for them something delightful. God provided for them bread from heaven. God provided it for them daily. And so when he provides instructions for them, the instructions are to serve as a test for the people. Now, the instructions are actually really simple. These are the kinds of instructions like a teacher gives to her class at the beginning of the the, the marking period. But then at the end of the marking period, when, when kids haven't completed the assignments, the teacher says, I wrote it down for you. I explained it to you. I put it online for you. I sent a reminder to your parents so they could talk to you about it. We talked about it in class. You've heard these instructions 12 times and still you got it wrong. And the instructions are really simple. Every day, gather as much as you need for one day. Except that what do some of the people do? Well, verse 26 tells us that, well, some of them saved too much. They gathered more than they should have, and so it became filled with maggots. And it brought anger from Moses. They, they, they were also then given instructions that on the sixth day, gather twice as much. Because the seventh day will be a Sabbath. And, and that word Sabbath just means stop, cease, desist. It means stop working. A Sabbath, a gift given to them by God. And yet some of the people went out on the seventh morning to gather it and couldn't find anything. And that provokes the Lord's response in verse 28. How long will you, all of you, refuse to keep my commands and instructions? Because the instructions are really simple. Six, you know, five days, enough for today, enough for tomorrow, enough for the next day. You gather just what you need on that day. And then on the sixth day, gather twice as much because you'll save it for the seventh day. It will be miraculously preserved. It's not complicated, except, well, it's forcing you to trust. As somebody who's starving, that the amount I eat today well, there will be more tomorrow. It forces you to trust that the God who met your need today will show up again and meet your need tomorrow. Which, of course, is the lesson they are supposed to be learning. That Deuteronomy says that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is meant to be a lesson to them that you can trust God today and tomorrow. You can trust God today. And on the next day, 
You can trust God today. That is what it is meant to teach the people of God. And yet, even the gift of Sabbath to them seems sort of strange. Wait, we get a day off? No, to you and I who live for the weekend, well, the life feels like, of course you get a day off. Everybody gets days off, right? Not if you're enslaved in Egypt. He doesn't care if he wants a day off, the Pharaoh wants the day off, well, then you are going to work so that he has a day off. And you know what? Pharaoh has weekends, well, every day. A people who had been enslaved are given this wonderful gift by God Today, you rest. Because this Sabbath is a day which is holy to the Lord. A day set apart by God where miraculously the provision will be given for you yesterday. So that you don't gather, you don't bake, you don't make anything today. You simply rest. And yet for the people, it it doesn't, at least for, for many of them, it doesn't make sense. Because when rules seem arbitrary, then we might think, well, well, why would I follow it? If, if people think a command doesn't make sense, then they won't take it seriously. And I think this is a problem not only in Exodus 16, I think it's a problem in our own hearts. We are willing to set aside biblical commands, a, a biblical framework for morality, how we should act and how we should live, because we say, well, that just doesn't kind of match with what I think it should be. God's rules don't always seem to make sense. A Sabbath day? I mean, what a waste. I could get so much more done if I worked straight through. We we sometimes look at the rules and say, yeah, I'm not going to do that. With God's commands, we say, but but look at what the world around me says. If if you take a tour of the Vienna Sausage Company in Chicago, they'll tell you about their state-of-the-art facility. But you'll also learn how they almost lost the flavor of their best-selling hot dog when they moved to the new factory. They they were providing natural, old-world, hickory-smoked, natural-casing hot dogs. But they just weren't as good in the new factory. Their chairman laments. He says they tasted okay, but they didn't have the right snap when you bit into them. Okay, now admittedly, the snap of a hot dog is not something I've given a lot of thought to, but I, if you're the CEO of the Vienna Sausage Company, you should be. But he said that wasn't even the real problem. He said the real problem is the color was all wrong. You just looked at them and thought, oh, I'm not eating that. Now, some of you probably have that reaction to hot dogs every time they're placed in front of you. Others of you, it, it, you, you can't get through a week without enjoying the delights of a hot dog. And I know what time it is, so I know I'm, I'm tempting you. For 80 years, they'd produced a consistent product, but now it was all wrong. They, they tried to figure out what was, what was what it was. They, they checked the ingredients. They, they tested the water. Was something added to the water? Or maybe the filtration process had removed something from the water. But they, they spent 18 months and couldn't come up with any solutions. And then one night, a bunch of guys from the plant were out having a drink, and they were reminiscing about the old factory. They started telling stories about a beloved coworker, Irving. Irving was the kind of guy that everybody knows. And he had a nickname for everybody in the factory. But when the factory moved to the new state-of-the-art facility, Irving decided... I'm not going to move with it. I think now's a good time to retire. But it turns out he was the guy who transported the uncooked sausages through a maze of passageways in the old factory in order to get them to the smokehouse. The chairman continues, it, it, was, it was here when we started thinking about Irving that we, 
we realized, he would go through the, the hanging vents where they kept the pastrami pieces. And it's quite warm in there. Then he would go through the boiler room where we produced all the energy for the plant. And then he would take next through the, the, the tanks where we cooked the corned beef. And then finally, he'd arrive at the smokehouse. And that's when they realized that their problem had been they'd been taking cold meat and immediately throwing it in to be cooked. When in the old factory, well, they had slowly warmed it up. And so the CEO says, that's why you're standing here. In this room, we had to add to this whole factory a pre-smokehouse hot room. Because despite all of the study that had gone into planning it, they had missed something really important. Okay, now why this, this lengthy aside into hot dogs? Even with months of planning, years of design work, lots of intelligent people looking at every step of the process, they still missed something important. And yet, when it comes to morality, something I actually think is slightly more difficult than creating a hot dog, when it comes to morality, we assume that, you know what, I have thought about this for about 10 seconds, and my intuitions tell me what is right. And so I can trust what I believe would be true in this situation because do you know what? I've talked to other people about it. I've lived in this world. And I have discovered a new state-of-the-art way to live that rejects all of the old ways, all of the old ideas, and I have figured everything out. Now, that's a dangerous thing to do when you're making hot dogs. That's a really foolish thing to do when you're trying to live life, to say, you know what, I'm the first person, I'm part of the first culture that has finally gotten this morality thing right. And yet that's the arrogance of our own hearts. When we look at God's commands and say, mm, I don't like that one. You know what, that my, based on my initial reaction... I'm not going to do it God's way. Because, well, I kind of don't want to. I mean, that's, the, I mean, that's the, the, the kind of thing you wouldn't let your children get away with. And yet, that's the way we want to live our lives. See, sometimes we think we know the best way to do something, and it turns out we've completely missed the purpose. The, the people are missing the fact that the, the, the bread from heaven is not just to meet their physical need. It's to provide for their spiritual blessing. I will trust God today, and tomorrow I'm going to see him prove his faithfulness again. I can trust that God has given me the Sabbath as a great gift. And that's what, what God is doing. He says, you will know that I am the Lord your God. That's what verse 12 says. When you are filled with bread, then you will know. See, because the people had, had forgotten. They weren't thinking about it. And yet we have everything we need from God. Now the promise that's here for us in, in Exodus 16 points us to this test of will we trust God spiritually? And this idea of bread from heaven points us, of course, forward. You, you heard it in the call to worship today, where Jesus steps onto the stage of history and says, 
I am the bread of life. When he declares himself to be the bread from heaven. And so I want us to to turn and look at this in John chapter 6, one of the New Testament Gospels. Actually, go ahead and turn in your Bibles. Often I'll reference another passage, but I'm there so, so, such a brief amount of time that, that by the time you get there, we've, we've missed it. No, turn with me to John chapter 6. If, you, if you're using the Bible right in front of you, it's page 1056. In John 6, Jesus has already performed a miracle, which is this, it's the only miracle accounted for in, in all four of the Gospels. He fed thousands gathered miraculously with just the five loaves and two fish. He fed 5,000. And it's in this chapter, when, when the people come back to him, they ask him, in verse 30 of John 6, what miraculous sign will you give us that we may see it and believe you? I mean, this is as foolish as the Israelites in the wilderness saying, God, what have you done for us lately? I mean, it's been like a month since we saw a giant miracle. And yet, for the people in John 6, it hasn't even been that long. He just fed you, miraculously, the the whole crowds, and there were leftovers. What sign will you give us? They say in verse 31 of John 6, Our forefathers ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're quoting Exodus 16. But then Jesus answers them in in verse 32. I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am am the bread. I am statements. These, the, the pulling back of the curtain where Jesus reveals who he is in the Gospel of John. He is bread from heaven. That's the language that will be used in, in, in verse 41. I am the bread that came down from heaven. It, it's repeated in, in, in verse 51 that he is the bread from heaven. Just as the people were, were provided bread from heaven by God, so Jesus shows that he has come to give them the gift of eternal life. But verse 41 tells us that at this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. A demand for a sign, the language of bread from heaven, and grumbling people. I mean, they've quoted Exodus 16, but they don't realize the irony that they're reenacting Exodus 16. Grumbling against the provision of God here. And yet Jesus tells them, verse 43, stop grumbling among yourselves. He tells them that he is the one who came. He says, verse 47, I tell you the truth, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Verse 49, your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now he begins to shift the metaphor here because he's revealing to them he came to give his own body. He came to give his life. It's the first time in John's gospel, this first promise that Jesus' life will be given his flesh for us. The Savior 
came to meet our deepest needs. And sometimes we think of faith, believing in Jesus, as sort of kind of crossing our fingers and wishing. Culturally, religious faith, Christian faith, is described as, as, as a wild leap to some, some foolish conclusion. And yet, you're not being asked to believe anything without evidence being immediately given. To the people in the wilderness, God rescued you from Egypt with his mighty arm, freed you by the miraculous plagues, led you out through the Red Sea, and now, having seen his power, he says, trust that I can give you bread tomorrow. The people in John 6 have seen the miracle. They are sitting with bellies filled by Jesus' miraculous provision, and yet still say, how about a sign? How about you do something to prove to us? He's saying, believe the very thing that you have seen. Believe because you have tasted and had your fill. And you and I get to get the same evidence they have, and yet we see so much more of this truth. That Jesus is the one who came to give his life. What you are asked to believe is that the Savior loved you enough to give everything. See, the rules of God are not arbitrary. He's meeting the needs of his people and doing it in a way that will lead them to deeper faith. The the provision of the Sabbath is not just a, hey, I want to see if you can keep a a seven-week calendar going. It's a blessing given to a people who have been worked nonstop. A reminder that, yes, we we need daily provision of food, but our bodies need rest. We are not infinite, but we have a God who is. And God's provision is not temporary. It is new for us every day. Jesus gave his life. His sacrifice is total so that we could have our spiritual fill. He says, I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, I pray that you would make us people who trust you today fully. Even as we have prayed that you would fill us today with your daily bread. That you would be the one who meets our needs, not just our physical needs, but Lord, that we would find in Jesus our spiritual satisfaction. That we would find in our Savior all of the hope that we need. That we would find by trusting in Him a life filled with joyful obedience. A life in which we receive blessing directly from heaven. Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. Lord, I pray for those that struggle today to to trust in Your goodness. That having heard the reading of Your Word and heard it proclaimed, they would be able to put their trust in You. And Lord, for those of us that struggle day to day to see your new mercies, to see your goodness in the moments in which we find ourselves, let the provision of manna and the promise of our Savior fill us with the hope of everlasting life. Lord, we rejoice in the death of our Savior and in his resurrection from the dead. We give him all the glory. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.